Romans 5.2 is our text for today. This is the 25th sermon in a study through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans was written by a missionary uh, in part. The book of Romans is a missionary support letter. Paul was raising money to go to Spain. The heart of God is missions. And so you should consider becoming a missionary. And if not, you certainly should work as hard as you can to help send other missionaries. Today's message is 37 handwritten pages. And the title of the message today is Glory, Glory. Please turn to Romans chapter 5. And as you do, remember that God loves you. Hear the word of the Lord today. I will read both verses 1 and 2 of Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Father in heaven, I pray today that we would gain an understanding today uh, just a little clearer of what your grace is, and Lord, that we will gain a clearer understanding of what your glory is. I pray, Lord, that we will experience your grace and your glory. Lord, I pray that that will happen through your word, by your spirit, concerning your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. The outline today is very simple. Point number one, this grace. Point number two, that glory. But before we get to that, let's review what we covered the last time we were together. Romans chapters 5 through 8 make up the second section of the book. Uh, section number 1 is chapters 1 through 4, in which it is stressed that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing apart from good works. Now here in section 2, chapters 5 through 8, Paul spells out what life is like between the time that we get saved and the time that we go to heaven. Uh, it is the overarching theme of hope. And that word hope actually appears in our text today. We also noted from Romans chapter 5 verse 1 that there are many benefits from justification. Uh, let's remember what justification is. Justification is to be declared righteous by God based upon the work of Jesus. And so Romans chapter 5 verse 1 tells us the first of those benefits, and that is peace with God. We used to be at war with God, but now there is peace based upon what Jesus has done on the cross. Today, what we're going to be doing is considering two additional benefits of justification, and they are grace and glory. Let me read the first part of verse 2 again as we consider point number 1, this grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This first half of verse number two raises a lot of questions. Let me give you three of those questions. First of all, it has to do with the translation of the word access. Uh, our ESV Bible has the word access. But it is also viable to use the word introduction. Now, if the word access is correct, as the ESV has it, then that means that the believer has an ongoing ability to have entry into the presence of God at any time. Sort of like a backstage pass. You can get in any time you want to. Complete ongoing access. Uh, that would be slightly more experiential than what would be the word introduction, which would be more positional. If the word should be translated introduction, and by the way, there are versions of the Bible where it is translated introduction, for example, the New American Standard Bible, then if it is introduction, it would carry with it the idea of our initial entry into salvation, entry into this grace. Um, we have not yet defined what this grace is, and I do not know that I will even adequately do that at any point during the sermon, but whatever it is, the word introduction would suggest that it is positional 
initial and entry into God or equivalent to salvation. Now, both of these options grammatically are possible, but which one is correct? Here's the second question that arises from the first half of verse 2, and that is, what is the metaphor? What is the word picture? What is the apostle? What does the apostle Paul want us to paint in our minds? Uh, some commentators cite the fact uh, that when this word was used, access or introduction, it was used in secular culture be, uh, in order to convey being brought into the presence of a king. You can't just go to a king on your own. You need either a formal introduction or you need access to be granted by another. That is a possible word picture and it is extremely viable. There are other commentators that say, no, that's not really what is being conveyed here in the word picture. They will say that it has to do with the temple in the Old Testament and the language or the picture of drawing near. Just as the people in the Old Testament could not draw near because of their sin and God's holiness and how this was depicted in the temple, especially on the Day of Atonement when that was the only day of the year when a priest could go in and that was through blood. Now we, through Christ, have complete and total access. We have a full formal introduction whereby we can draw close to God. That is another viable imagery of what might be at play here. The third concern uh, is more complicated than the first two put together, and that is, what is this grace? Uh, it, it, now, as you look at it, you will have to grant that it does not say what this grace is. So there is the possibility that we might get it wrong. However, even if we do get it wrong, please know this. Whatever it is, it's a good thing because it is grace. But let's try to figure out what this grace is. I've read a lot of commentaries on this. I will give you the two majority opinions. Some commentators say that this grace is referring to justification. Uh, the most compelling argument comes from John Murray, who lived from 1898 to 1975. He is one of the founders of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And here is his argument, and I quote. He says, Since the specification, this grace, should naturally be taken to refer to that which had been specified, we should not look for some other privilege above and beyond that which had already been stated. The expression through whom also compels us to think of justification and the main thought of verse 2 is therefore to stress the fact that it is through the mediation of Christ that we have been instated into the grace of justification, end quote, did you follow that? If you didn't, let me restate it and simplify it. He is saying, since the word this is used, it has to be referring to something which was very recently spoken of. You just don't use the word this unless you're referring to something. And he says the most logical thing to connect this with is justification spoken of in verse 1. That is a pretty good argument. There are others that say, no, I don't think that's correct, and I'll tell you why I don't think it's correct. It's because it would be redundant to say in verse 1, we have been justified by faith, and then to turn around immediately in verse 2 and say, through him by faith, we have access into justification. It would just be an immediate repeating of what he had said before, which I think is a good point. The second option for defining what this grace is, is to think of grace as the opposite to or the antithesis of the law. God's people were under the law of Moses. But now, through Christ, we are introduced or have access into a grace-based existence. We no longer relate to God based upon the law but we relate to God based upon grace. We are in the realm of grace. And this definition 
fits very well into the overarching context of the book of Romans. Because remember, Paul has spent a lot of ink in section 1 talking about the deficiencies of trying to be right with God through the law. Back in 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And in 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And later in chapter 6, Paul is going to say, you, chapter 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. The most articulate champion for this particular position is a man by the name of Douglas Moo. He has written what is the thickest commentary that I have ever seen on any book of the Bible on the book of Romans. And here's what Moo says concerning this being our status or the realm of grace. That's what this grace is. Moo writes, and I quote, this status being in the realm of grace, it is a realm that is set in contrast to the realm or dominion of the law. There is a new status of the believer as one in which grace is characteristic and dominant. While this grace includes our justification as a key element, the notion goes beyond justification to all that is conveyed to us by God in Christ, and end quote. So, if you've been keeping score up to this point, you hopefully have noted that I myself have not rendered an opinion as to what I think the correct interpretation would be. Let me do that at this time. First of all, I prefer the interpretation or the translation access as opposed to introduction. The reason that I prefer that is because I think that the imagery here is not something which is objective or forensic or positional, but I think the imagery here is that of the temple. You see, in the Old Testament law, when we contrast that with being able to draw near in the new covenant, that, I believe, is what is being conveyed here. And this grace, to me, is contrasted with Old Testament law. Put it together, and what do you have? Well, I think what Paul is saying here is that a benefit of being justified is that you used to be afar off, you used to be excluded, you used to be outside because of your sin, but now in Christ you are justified, and as a result of that, you now have access into the realm of grace, because the veil has been torn in two. You may come freely to Christ, and you may come into his presence with full access, not through observance of the law of Moses, but by grace and grace alone. This is what John had in mind when he wrote John 1.17. For the law was given through Moses. And then he gives this contrast when he says, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And you might say, all right, so you're, you're picking this verse apart with a fine-tooth comb. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we agree with you. What difference does this make? What application can I possibly make in my life based upon the information that you've given me so far? And Because in reality, I am not a Jew. I am not tempted to put myself under the law or the rule of Moses in the Old Covenant. I am in a state of grace. I am in the realm of grace. And it is pretty much a foregone conclusion that I am under grace. And it has been that way for over 2,000 years. So why then are you belaboring this point? And I would say, not so fast. It is true that maybe you are not now, nor will you ever be struggling or wrestling with the temptation to go back under Old Testament law. Fair enough. But what we all have in common as human beings is that we all have a built-in orientation toward being works-based. That is the way that we lean. That is the way that we, by nature, think. We, we are those that are inclined toward law-keeping. And we believe, even if we have good, good, good uh, doctrine, we believe that our relationship with God stands or falls 
based upon how well we perform. Uh, Listen to this quote by Paul Barnett. He says, Our natural way of thinking tells us that we must work, work, work to win God's favor. Even when we grasp the unexpected truth that God saves us by grace and deals with us by grace, we keep returning to the grudging work attitude of a resentful slave. We must constantly remind ourselves that we are not under law but under grace as beloved children of our dear Heavenly Father, end quote, and I think he's right. Do you understand what he's saying? Even people who have really good doctrine People who believe, and here's the, here's the irony, in the doctrines of grace have trouble grasping grace experientially. You can believe all of the right things about grace and yet not experience the grace of God in having access to God into this grace. And, and, and so let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you in two ways. And here's what I'm trying to prove. I'm trying to prove to you that your natural inclination is toward law and not toward grace. Proof number one is this. Do you not find it curious and strange and even mathematically bizarre that when an analysis is done of all of the world's religion, that every religion's religion in the world, all of them, 100% of them, Islam, Hinduism, Roman Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, all of them, without exception, all of them operate based upon a works-based system of salvation or blessing. I mean, you would think with all of the religions in the world, there would be at least one grace-based religion that is not merit-based that is not works-based, but there just isn't. There is one, and that is biblical Christianity, but other than biblical Christianity, every religion in the world says, you've got to work your way there. Why is that true? The reason that that is true is because man left to himself is going to come up with his own religion. He's not going to get it from divine revelation. God is not going to help him. God is not going to inform him as he is forming his religion. When Islam or Roman Catholicism or, or, or Mormonism, when all of that was formed, it was not formed with the aid or the help of God the Holy Spirit. It, it was something that man came up with on their own. Well, when we come up with something on our own, we come up with something that is inside us, something that is is part of our DNA. And in 100% of the cases, man will always come up with a works basis for salvation or blessing. That's not to say that Islam and Roman Catholicism There's no difference between the two. There are differences between the two. But at the heart of both is this. It is works-based. That's who we are at the core, and that's what we are going to come up with. Grace is not a natural concept to us. It's counterintuitive to the natural man. Proof number one is that all religions of the world are works-based. Here's the second proof that that we, left to ourselves, are not going to think about grace. And that is a question that I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, and I want you to answer the question honestly. I do not want you to answer it based upon what you know the correct answer to be from Scripture. I want to ask you, how do you really feel? How, How do you really feel? Here is the question, and I'm speaking to Christians right now. I'm not speaking to unsaved people. I'm asking you Christians you who are born again, this question right now. Ask yourself, what does God think of me? When I ask you, what does God think of you? How does he view me? How does he feel about me? When you think about him thinking about you, what do you envision? What is the tone of his voice? What is the look on his face? What do you think he wants to say to you? I want to have a word with you, God says. What do you think he would say to you? 
Now, I hope I'm wrong about this. But most Christians, even Christians with really good doctrine, envision a God who is some combination of cold and distant and disgusted and miffed and chagrined and fed up, tolerant but not pleased, arms folded, wrinkled forehead, not running to us like the prodigal son's father, but in some way distant from us. What do you think God thinks of you? He's certainly not smiling, or warm, or delighted, or close, or loving. I mean, isn't it strange that people who have perfectly good doctrine and who can even preach the doctrines of grace actually cannot experience grace because they think that God has a bone to pick with them and they think God is distant from them. Why? Here's why. Because we don't understand what it means to have access to the grace in which we stand. Because the justification which has been granted is, is, is something which is academic to us. What we need is to experience the grace of God. And what Paul tells them here is that you are now in the realm of grace. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in 10.22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. The prodigal son was a typical works-based thinker and reasoner. And, and, and here he is, he's, he's out of money, he's out of food, he's thinking about his father, and he starts thinking about, okay, how, how am I going to get home? The first thing that comes to his mind is not grace. What he thinks about is, I'm not worthy to be called one of my father's servants, so here's what I'm going to do. And he prepares a speech in his mind as to how he's going to get back in favor with his father. And if you read the story, he starts to give the speech. The father interrupts him and says, welcome home, we're having a party. But his thinking is not, when I see my dad, he's going to run toward me. His thinking is, he's going to sit there, and he's going to scowl. And I don't blame him if he does, because that's what I've earned. How shocked he was when his father ran toward him. I would love for us to be shocked by grace today. What does God think of you? I want to tell you what God thinks of you. He, he knows that you're a mess. He knows more than you know that you are a mess. He, he knows your thoughts and he knows the motives of your thoughts. He knows everywhere that you've been. He knows everything that you've said. Your sin is not a mystery to him. It's not hidden from him. What does he think of you? He loves you. He feels for you. He delights in you. He sings over you. Your Father loves you. That is something which we do not think about left to ourselves. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. We need to keep singing it. We need to start believing it. Now, <coughs> as I said, I might be wrong about what this grace means. But even if I am wrong, praise God, we have access to it. It is a good thing. It is through Jesus. And this is where we stand. So, there's a lot more that could be said about grace today. Clock on the wall says that I'm done with that part and I need to move on to point number two. <clears throat> and that is that glory. Here's the second half of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's a little bit easier to decipher, but not much. Once again, there are some variables here that need to be interpreted. We rejoice is an acceptable translation, but most commentators say that it's not quite strong enough. Because the actual word that is used here is more akin to our word boast. 
Not that we are boasting in ourselves, but, but, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. It is boasting in God. The NIV says we boast. The New American Standard says we celebrate. You know, the best translation, and I hate to admit this, I, I just hate to admit this, but the best translation is the New Living Translation, and it says, we confidently and joyfully look forward. That gets it. Now, I'm not saying that the word rejoice is a weak word. I'm just saying that the word used here is stronger. And in English, we don't see that there is a word play here in Greek. R.C. Sproul points it out in his commentary when he says, what it literally says is, we glory now in glory. We glory now in glory. We have a sense of celebration and ecstasy beyond normal levels of joy. And the target of our joy is hope directed toward the manifestation of the glory of God. We are in the activity of glorifying the one who possesses glory, end quote. And I think Sproul nails it. That's the play on words. You see, we, were, we use the word hope as a sort of a wish or a desire. Uh, will the weather be pleasant for the picnic? Well, I sure hope so. Meaning, that is my wish, that is my desire, but I have absolutely no assurance that the rain will hold off. But hope in the glory of God here is a sure hope. So we need to define the word hope as it is used here. Uh, Sproul once again says, hope is merely faith looking forward. And the metaphor that the author of the book of Hebrews uses with respect to hope is that of an anchor, Hebrews 6.19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that is behind the veil in the Holy of Holies. So what's the word picture that the author of the book of Hebrews is using? He's saying you have a hope, and I'm going to tell you how sure that hope is. It is like an anchor. You drop that anchor and then someone asks you the question, do you think that your ship is going to float away? And you respond by saying, no, I have an absolute sure hope, H-O-P-E, hope that it will not. In fact, I'm going to go down in the hall. I'm going to go to sleep right now. I'm going to sleep soundly. And the wind might rock the boat back and forth. It might bob a little bit. But I can close my eyes confidently and hope. I know that when I wake up tomorrow morning, the ship is going to be right here. And the reason I know that is because of the anchor. Our hope is an anchor. It is a sure thing. It's not, I sure hope so. It's I am fully convinced. That's what the word hope means here. So what do we have so far? It is an exuberant celebration and full confidence in the absolute certainty of future blessing. The final word that needs to be added to our glossary in this verse is the word glory. We hope in the glory of God. The word itself denotes intense brightness or heaviness. The glory referred to in Romans 5.2 is the glory which was lost in the fall at the Garden of Eden but will be restored when we are with Him in glory or, or in heaven. What has Paul told us so far in the book of Romans about glory? Well, he said back in chapter 1, verse 23, that there were some foolish people Sinners who exchanged God's glory for idols. And then he tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm embarrassed to admit this to you, but, but I don't know how many, I don't even want to say hundreds, maybe even thousands of times I have quoted that verse. And I have never considered what it actually says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God means that because we are sinners, we can't go to heaven. That is a true statement that is not what it says. 
what it says is that all have sinned, and as a result of that sin, there is a distortion of, a removal of, a falling short of, an inability to experience the glory of God. And Paul is going to use that word glory another eight times in the book of Romans, most notably in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not worth compared comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So what does it mean in chapter 5, verse 2? Well, glory in 5.2 is a state of mind in the present, which is looking forward to being obtained in the future. That's a hope. And the object of that hope is the glory of God. John Stott puts it this way. His radiant splendor, which will in the end be fully displayed. You know, there are a lot of songs that we sing about the glory of God. I think most of them are really good. You know what I think the best song is about the glory of God? In fact, I don't even know what would come in second place. Here's the best song I know of about the glory of God. I got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. I think that says it better than anything. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, 43. Then the righteous will shine in the kingdom of their father. I am headed to glory land. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. I'm going to that place. Well, what's it like there? It's glory land and it outshines the sun. That is a an accurate definition of glory. Let me just pause for a second, give you a commercial break and say this. We are not, by nature, and again, I am talking to Christians, we are not, by nature, people that are excited about the glory of God. The reason we're not excited about it is because we don't know what it is. Our capacity to comprehend the value of God's glory is low. See, the whole concept of God's glory is it's either nebulous, like what, like what are you talking about? I, I can't put my teeth into this. I mean, what, what, what it, what it, I mean, you say it's a heaviness, it's a brightness, it outshines the sun, it's a restoration of that which was lost in the Garden of Eden, but like, like, I, I, I can't get a hold of it. It's either nebulous or, quite frankly, it's just boring to us. Well, here's an illustration. This illustration will fall short. In fact, anything that you would compare with the glory of God is going to fall short. So I don't feel that bad about myself. But, but hopefully this will get the point across. All my life, I had heard about the Grand Canyon. The people that I talked to were very excited as they described it. That Their experience was something which sounded delightful. Uh, I listened to them. I believed what they had to say. Uh, in fact, I even looked at pictures of the Grand Canyon. And people had sent me postcards. And I had watched movies and videos. And even in some of these movies and videos, People would be in a helicopter and they would be flying around in there and there would be, and then, and, and, and the pixelation and everything would be really good. I mean, like, they were, you would get a really good view on your screen of it. And so I would say, okay, I, I, I kind of see what you're talking about, but I don't really see what all the fuss is about. And then in May of 2005, I took my then seven year old daughter, Savannah, to see it. And I kid you not, when I walked up in an instant, in less than one second, when my breath was taken away, I fully then understood what the big deal was about. Immediately, my capacity was, was, was an ability, an ability to fully comprehend the majesty of the Grand Canyon. It was enlarged like that simply by seeing it. You're Bible believers. I'm not telling you anything new when I say 
that the glory of God is the greatest thing in all the world. In all the world, there is nothing greater than the glory of God. There's, there's nothing that is better than the glory of God. The glory of God is the greatest thing in all the world. I know that you believe that. But do you believe that? The reason that I ask the question is, we spend so much of our energy contemplating things which are, in the long run, nothing, and sometimes things which are even in the short run, nothing. And we, 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 we pursue that and we meditate upon that and we give very little thought to the thing which is the greatest thing in all the world. You see, by faith, if you believe the Bible, and I know that you do believe the Bible, then you believe that nothing tops the glory of God. But I want to ask you this question and I want you to answer within your heart honestly. How vigorously do you yearn for it? How expectantly do you long for it? How intensely do you hope for it? This world that we live in consumes most of our hopes and our longings and our expectations. The reason that is true is quite simply because we do not have an appetite for the glory of God. And it is important that we develop this appetite. Consider how wonderful this glory is. You say, all right, pastor, tell me how magnificent is the glory of God? And, and by the way, I don't even know what I'm talking about this morning. Okay, I, 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 am, I am preaching based upon faith. I've not been to heaven. I don't experientially know what this is. But here's what I can tell you about the glory of God. It is so magnificent that when we will be in the unveiled presence of God, it will be enough to captivate us and to satisfy us and to delight us for eternity. Who are these knuckleheads that say, I don't know if I want to go to heaven? Sounds kind of boring to me. They don't know what they are saying, first of all, when they consider the alternative. Secondly, they don't understand what they're saying because they have not contemplated the glory of God. Listen, after about three and a half hours of standing there looking at that big hole in the ground in Arizona, I mean, it was still magnificent, but no, it's time to go. Three and a half hours, I mean, I can look at it for a long time, but... Okay, you have a baby. Can't take your eyes off of that baby. Mesmerized. Doesn't last for 18 years. <laughs> the glory of God lasts throughout eternity and we never weary of it. I don't have the illustrations. I don't have the vocabulary. I, 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 I can't, I can't explain it to you. But it must be really wonderful if it can captivate us throughout all eternity. This hope in the glory of God, it, 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 it's not just that we will behold his glory, but it's also that we ourselves will be glorified. And when I say that we will be glorified, it means that we'll be in a glorified state. And here's why I think it is hard for us to grasp it. We think about going to heaven. And when we envision ourselves going to heaven, we think that we, in our current state, are going to go there. You are in actuality going to go there. But when you go there, you will, you will be the same person you are now, but you will be very different than you are right now. You will have different understanding. You will be what the Bible calls glorified. 
you'll see things differently. So let me just say several comments about the glory of God. First of all, you need to know that God in and of himself is glorious. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. You need to know that the scripture teaches that the glory of God is displayed in nature. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. You need to know that God's glory is uniquely displayed in his Son. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from a Father full of grace and truth. John here is referring to what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when the glory of Christ was unveiled. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the unique glory of Christ. It is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His glory was further amplified and manifested in his death and resurrection. Jesus says in John 12, 23, in reference to his death, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour of my death is an hour in which I will be glorified. And then he says concerning that same hour, a few chapters later in John 17, 1, Father, the hour, that is the hour of my death has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. You see, the gospel is of first importance when it comes to the doctrine of glory. One day, we will be glorified. Romans 8.30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this does not mean that we are going to become God or we are going to become many gods like the Mormons teach. It doesn't mean that we in any way by being glorified are going to diminish the glory of God, but it means that we will be in a glorified state and that which was lost in the fall is not only going to be brought back, but it is even going to be better because we are not going to be conformed to the image of an unstained Adam, but we are being conformed into the image of Christ. It is magnificent. This glorification is something which is far better than going back to the Garden of Eden. In simple terms, to be glorified means a lot more than you are going to heaven. It means that all of the vestiges of sin will be removed. You're not just going to be forgiven but you're going to be fully restored and, and, and sin is going to be not just sort of lingering over there, but it's going to be removed forever. But there's not going to be just this absence of sin. There's going to be this ability to enjoy the presence of God. It's going to change. How you think is going to change. What you value is going to change. Your ability to perceive, it's going to change. First John 3, 2, beloved, we are right now currently God's children. Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know, here's that hope, that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. Implied in that is that we currently do not see Him as He is. It is important that we see him more accurately than we currently do. And the way that we do that is by studying the Bible. But take the person in the world who knows the Bible the best. They still do not see him as he is. But when we see him face to face, we will see him as he is. How does one go from being consumed with the things of this world and being bored with or confused by the idea of the glory of God, how do they change into people who long for, expectantly desiring the full and final glorification in the presence of God? Well, the answer is not through some sort of list or formula that you need to follow. But the answer as to how this comes about is quite simply in and through a person. It is Christ himself. Colossians 1.27 Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
What is the hope of glory? It is Christ in you. Our union with Christ. When we are saved, we are joined to Him. And He in us produces the hope of glory. When by faith Christ is dwelling in our hearts, He Himself will cause us to have an anchor-like sure expectation of total restoration. And the desire to be in the presence of God and to enjoy His glory and the expectation that we ourselves will be fully conformed to the image of Christ is something which will grow in us when we, through our union with Christ, are transformed. And the Scripture says that that transformation, not completely, but gradually can happen in the here and now. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, you are progressing in your sanctification. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It comes about through the Spirit's work in our hearts. In other words, in the here and now, we will progress in our understanding uh, ever so gradually of the glory of God and our appreciation for it. But it is nothing like our ultimate glorified state. So in the time that remains, here's what I'm going to give you not going to give you a list of things to do. There's not going to be any application at the end of this sermon as there usually is. But I just want to make five observations concerning future glory. And I want us to meditate upon these things. Sometimes it's good when you hear the Word of God just to meditate upon the truth. And I give credit here to Colin Cruz, who has written a commentary on Romans, in large part I am drawing from his observations concerning future glory. I have five of them. First of all, glory is a reward for those who live a good life. Now I'm not saying that by living a good life you will be saved. You are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But after you have been saved, you are saved unto good works and in Romans chapter 2, verse 10, it says, Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. So there is a connection between our good works and the glory that is to follow. Number two, our inheritance is glorious. Ephesians 1, 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious, glorious inheritance in the saints. In other words, Paul says, I, I, I want you to, to open your eyes in the now, and I want you to see that that which is to come is a glorious inheritance. Number three, there is a connection there is a connection between our sufferings here in the now and eternal glory. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17, Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction. Let's just stop right there. Paul, what are you talking about, light momentary? They beat the fool out of you and they did it all the time. Paul says, just a flesh wound. I mean, compared with eternity, it's, it's not that big of a deal. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all what? Comprehension. Beyond all comprehension. You do not have the capacity in the here and now to grasp this, which makes me feel a little better about my sermon seeing as how it is beyond all comprehension. But for now, it's light 
and it's momentary. Number four, we are going to receive a glorified body. A glorified resurrection body. Philippians 3.21, it says, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. I know some of you walked in here today and you are sick. You might even have cancer. You might have heart problems. You might have aches and pains which you have been carrying in your body for years. And you have no hope that that will go away. Well, I want to tell you today that the Gospel gives you hope that when you get there, you will have a glorified resurrection body and pain will be gone. And number five, best of all, is that we will be in His glorious presence. Jude 24, now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. Wow. It, it all boils down to this. It's being with Him. Spurgeon put it this way. You need not to know much about heaven. It is where Christ is. And that is enough heaven for us. Just being where He is, that is enough. I'm going to tell you, if I knew what the Grand Canyon was like, I would have tried to get there a lot sooner. If we knew what the glory and presence of God was like, we would long to be there. We would think about that. We would set our minds on things that are above. We would be less worldly. We would be more maniacal in our church membership. This would be the place where we fully invest our lives. Why? Because this is the manifestation of heaven on earth. It is the church. We would commune more with the Lord. We would pray more. We would read the Bible more. I want to be where you are, O Lord. So justification by faith in Christ gives us peace with God. It gives us access into the realm of grace. And it gives us hope that we will enjoy forever the glory of His presence. Paul, what ought we to do now as we wait? And Paul says, we rejoice, we boast, we exalt, we celebrate. We celebrate the hope of eternal glory. Sometimes in sermons we just need to pause and consider future glory and not be given a list of things to do, but just delight in what will be because of what Christ has done. And do you know why He did that? He did it because He loves you. Hope you didn't forget that He loves you. He loves you. Don't ever forget that. Okay, 119 down, 314 to go. Which means what? Oh, it means we're getting there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are in heaven. Lord, I'm looking forward to being there. Lord, I realize that we who will be there will be there because of Christ. Lord, may we live the remainder of our days here on earth with the hope and anticipation of heaven thinking about that glorious day, that home in glory land that outshines the sun. Lord, may that shape us even in the now to be conformed to the image of Your Son, rejoicing in our hearts that one day that will be a final and full reality. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.